Welcome to the Trauma Resonance Recovery Podcast and I'm your host Lisa Cherry and it is my complete pleasure to be here and as always I am really excited to be here and I always start with being really excited because I just am Um, and I'm going to introduce this evening's um, guest and if I just say that she is a developmental psychologist She was a research scientist at the University of Dundee for nearly 20 years, studying infant relationships and development. In 2011, she stepped away from full-time academic work to disseminate the science she loved to the public. um, And she believes that everybody deserves to have access to this information about relationships, attachment and trauma. In 2014, she set up the organization Connected Baby to engage in more creative ways to reach the public. And she's become a leading voice in Scotland and the push to have an ACE aware nation where every citizen of Scotland understands the impact of childhood suffering. Please welcome big hello to Dr. Suzanne Zedike. Lisa, I am so excited to be here tonight and to have a chance to talk about the ACEs debate itself. I think this was a brilliant idea that you had. Well, listen, this is how we're going to go. We're going to do this uh, when this is on the podcast, uh, just so that those of you that are listening later from today, this is being recorded as a live webinar. So me and Suzanne will talk for about 40 minutes and then we will go into Q&A. So for those of you who can uh, scroll along the, the bottom bar of your um, screen, you'll see Q&A and you can put your questions in there. And at about 20 minutes before the end, we will go to the questions. Yes. So where do we start? So listen, the, the, cent- the centering question that really brought this event together was why is the conversation about ACEs so challenging? So I'm going to start us off. There's two things, and I'm not sure if they're linked actually, but there's two things that I was thinking about. One of them is around polarization and duality. Okay. And the other is around power. Yep. Okay. So let's start off thinking about (coughs) power. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's start with power um, because I think it's not something I've seen particularly explored or talked about in the debate. And for those of you that perhaps aren't on Twitter, um, one of the things that is quite apparent in this discussion and that will have led us here undoubtedly is that sometimes the debate can get very polarized and um, oppositional. And we kind of want to, we want to explore and be curious about that um, this evening. Yes. Uh, And there are places that me and you share in in our views and there'll be undoubtedly places where we don't. um, And we'll both be absolutely fine with that. Um, (laughs) And the crucial, Lisa, the crucial thing, for me is can two people, two groups of people come to those differences with curiosity or with accusation. And so, and and I highlight that because I think that that difference is at the heart of some of the ACEs debate, 
difference is important and it has always existed in science and it exists in the wider world about how do we tackle problems. We make most progress if we can be curious even where there is difference. One of the things that I am interested in this debate is, is how it becomes so tense. That is fascinating to me. So I'm yeah. with you. Yeah. And, and I think if it's not an unusual thing to have that debate, to have discussion, to have differences, to have different ways of seeing the same thing. That's very much part of any kind of theory, any kind of um, research but yet there's something about um, the adverse childhood experiences debate that becomes very polarized very quickly and creates, I think, creates a level of discomfort that goes beyond um, that normal kind of discussion tone. Uh, I agree. And if, that is what, although there are things about that that are unfortunate, so it often shuts people down. It's all, it's, um, the, the tone of that debate is scaring some people, is making them step back. And that's a concern to me. On the other hand, if that is what it takes in order for us to talk about childhood suffering, because for me at the core of this is how do we talk about childhood suffering and have it on a you know, on a cultural agenda, as well as a professional agenda, how do we talk about that? I would rather that we were arguing about it than it was in silence. So I welcome that discussion and debate, even when the tone gets fractious. That's interesting, because I find myself stepping back. Um, and I think part of it is because I'm really comfortable with gray areas. I'm really okay with agreeing with one thing, but not agreeing with another. Um, I'm really okay with shades. It's, I don't feel that need to be either or. Um, and it's interesting because that's quite difficult when, so we've had years of either or. The whole yep. political framework has been about, you know, do you want to stay or do you want to go? You know, yep. whether that's Brexit or Scotland or do you want to be hit? Yes or no. I mean, what kind of um, discussion is that? Whereas actually, I'm wondering if there's something about uh, the ACES discussion that just shifts people really quickly into that either or place um, in the way that other political things have done. And why... why is that and what's the reluctance to be okay with the gray areas? Well, a minute ago you mentioned uh, you mentioned power, so let's come back to that in a moment. But let me just pick up what you just said there. Mm -hmm. I think curiosity is a really powerful stance, and I have come to realize how much I depend on curiosity when things get tough in my personal life or I can see things going on in the, in the wider world. So I talk a lot about curiosity and anybody who is here tonight who follows my work will be familiar with me talking about that. When things then get tense, I shift into what I call fierce curiosity. 
So in other words, I'm, I'm, I up my level of curiosity to wonder what is that tension about? And so I think we really need a lot of curiosity around ACEs and around the ACEs debate at the moment. And one of the interesting things for me is we didn't always. Okay, so in Scotland, the ACEs movement started around 2004 with the Violence Reduction Unit. So our chief medical officer, the leaders of the Violence Reduction Unit, um, others who were working with uh, kinship carers and in schools, were talking about ACEs along with attachment, along with relationships. There was no debate. The debate came about as ACEs became better known. So here in Scotland in 2017, we had the tour of the film Resilience and lots more people came to understand it because of that film. And then uh, there were local ACEs hubs formed in lots of communities by community members who wanted to talk about this. And then there were lots of events and two of those events were large events where several thousand people came. And we began to, some of us to talk about having an ACE aware nation. It was as it built and as more people came to understand it that the debate came about. Now, Felidi and Anda talk about the resistance and the denial that they experienced from other professionals in the 90s as they were talking about this. But so, so there was resistance, but this debate that so many of us are familiar with now is, is really in the last few years. And so I think that it has come with greater awareness of the science and of what people are doing with the science. And I think there's something interesting in that. It didn't come originally. But that resistance makes sense in a health context. Yep. That resistance makes sense in a health context because there is so much money involved in pharmaceutic, pharmaceutics, in disordering people as mad, bad or sad. There's a real, you know, uh, the resistance I can see very clearly. But thinking about childhood adversity uh, in terms of, say, social work, there is a lot of resistance to thinking through this lens, certainly with social work academics. Well, I think that the resistance and the debate comes from a whole strain of themes. And you and I have talked about this sometimes. In, um, and so I think there are a variety of themes and different people have different feelings about them. And they've all got chucked into the debate and we haven't had a chance to pull them apart. So let me give an example. Mm-hmm. And I'm holding on to this issue of power, which we haven't actually come to yet. Okay, but okay. So one of the things that ACEs taps into is How do we understand the nature of human experience? And in this case, trauma and suffering. So a fancy word for that is phenomenological. What is the phenomenon of human experience? Um, Another debate is conceptual. In other words, how do we make sense of it and organize it and use it to explain and predict outcomes? Another question is measurement. How do you, if you want to do research, how do you measure things. Some people would say we we can't measure trauma at all. 
Well, Felidi and Anda were empirical scientists, so they tried to come up with, with a way to measure it, and they did it numerically. Not everybody thinks that you should do that with something like trauma. Um, another issue is ethics. Who pays for research? And who pays to disseminate it? Like, who pays for that film resilience? Is that ethical? That's scientific information. Maybe KPJR should have made their film for free. Lots of people distrust the fact that there are insurance companies that are associated with the creation of the ACES original research. Um, there's the language. How do we talk about it? How do we frame it? I think ACES and attachment are, are very aligned. I think ACES is kind of an extension of the attachment research from our 1930s. But that isn't often talked about. There's a big debate about, is, is are ACEs and trauma the same thing or not? There are some people who feel really strongly that a trauma-informed approach is different from an, from an ACE-informed approach. So now we need to go back to the definitions of what is trauma and what is ACEs and what language do we use to talk about it. And there are also, there's also perspective difference. So do we talk about things from a first-person perspective lived experience or do we talk about them from a professional experience and very often there's a bit of a hierarchy going on in, in professions for service users and the people who are delivering the services um, and then there's a there's an academic perspective so there are some people who feel that the academic perspective in the aces debate is not sufficiently in tune with lived experience voices and now and i could pick up others but that's a good ex you know that's a good set we i think there are different arguments going on and they've all got lumped in together. So now that we are having a debate, I think let's take time and space to pull some of those apart, but that would take curiosity. And within that, think about power issues. So since I'm determined to get us back to that great question you asked, when you have a discussion about, is ACEs about first person lived experience versus professionals, that's an issue of power. So many people, some of whom are here tonight, will say that ACEs needs to be fundamentally about the lived experience of trauma and that that needs to be a predominant voice in this debate. And some people feel like it has not taken, you know, it's not, it's not gotten enough attention, enough light has not been shown on that. As soon as we talk about who has the authority to speak about human experience, and, and in fact, who has the like who who has the practical possibility of speaking about human experience? We're talking about power. So power is one crucial issue in all of this, and I am intrigued that we very seldom use that word in the debate. So I'm delighted that you've brought it tonight. Well, I think what's really coming up for me while you're talking is the complexity of yes. something that needs to have lived experience at the heart of it, which yep. is individualized really, isn't it? Because that's about when we, that's about us and what it does to us to help us understand the impact of adversity and trauma upon our lives. The, the rub then becomes the incorporation of systems Systems, communities, politics, policies, all the things that um, can create adversity, add to adversity, fail to heal 
adversity and how are those things then incorporated? And sometimes I think the discussion, the debate, particularly from a sociological point of view, a social work point of view, an academic point of view, is about saying that by purely that it, that somehow the ACE, ACEs research purely t- locates things in the individual without taking consideration for the systems, communities, lack of resources, etc., that create harms too and there are models that bring those two together but I don't think that place is met well in this debate so there's another tension there that I think we don't nuance and unpick and allow ourselves to sit in that gray space enough and when the debate becomes loud it's then hard to make space to ask the questions about, is that true that the ACEs model is individualized and decontextualized? And I personally don't think that that's an accurate description of what the ACEs model does. Yet, we could, other people might disagree and we could have a really helpful discussion about that, but there's not space to have that discussion when the, when the feelings are fraught and there's a tone that says you are wrong for thinking through an ACE's lens. Well, let's, let's call this out for what it is. Actually, it's triggering. That's absolutely one of the things I wanted to say. Yeah. I think that a lot of where the, the tension is coming from is we are talking about childhood suffering. And that is my core. That's the core place I come into this is that we are talking about the sore things that happen to you in childhood or that happen to other people. And they're often also based in shame. So, you know, we're not talking simply about simply, you know, what is simple about anything in childhood, but in other words, there might be things you could talk about in childhood that weren't connected so easily to experiences of shame. But a lot of what we're talking about with ACEs can be wrapped up in shame. So, as, as soon as we start to try to do that, people have lots of feelings about that and they're not always comfortable. So it makes sense that there should be uh, lots of different reactions. But at the same time, children suffer. And so we need to find a way to look at childhood suffering or more children suffer and more people live with the consequences of that suffering. So when we get really wrapped up about what do we call it, and what should the model be, I can get frustrated because if that takes us away from actually looking at the suffering that is going on in childhood, it it doesn't fulfill the key aim that I think an awful lot of people want to do, which is to address childhood suffering and to Mm -hmm. reduce it. But us adults who can get triggered can sometimes get caught up in some of the stuff that goes on, you know, in our heads and our own histories without then having a look at how that is stopping us from addressing the key thing, which is suffering. Mm. So I keep trying to use this word suffering more these days to remind us that ultimately that's what we're talking about and to help us to stay curious and to understand that this is triggering for all of us and hopefully to open up more curiosity and more patience and more understanding that we are dealing in the realm of trauma. Yeah. And, you know, it's a very good 
way of thinking about things that so for example one of the things that comes up a lot is around this idea that aces is about scoring people and i think that's something worth having a conversation about because that's an interpretation yeah of what you can do with this stuff and that might be how some people have interpreted it um, and it's it is laden with problems, but without having a conversation about this idea of scoring, um, and in fact, that's just my view. Some people, I you know, might find it helpful to think about how impacted they have been if they are coming from the lens of lived experience. Some people might find it. Um, limiting and not find it helpful at all and it's it's this it's that it's that again personal thinking about how to use this particular model that is lost if we go back into a wider historical frame we have been having these discussions for 200 years or more I'm, I'm sure probably more, but if we just go back 200 years, 200 years ago, people were having um, discussions about how do we make sense of disease, of what we would now call um, medical experiences, if, if you can even put those two words together, medical experience, um, how you made sense of what, uh, what we would now call mental health issues, right? So... 150 years ago, people began to come up with a diagnostic framework, right? And so they, they began to, talk, to make sense that this was normal and this was abnormal. And once upon a time, we had asylums and we had asylums for a long time. And then we decided that asylums were not a very good way to approach mental health. So we would have community care and we would move people out of asylums onto the street. Okay. And then we came up with diagnoses like... I don't know, uh, personality disorder and borderline personality disorder and depression. And I can name lots. And in fact, it's, you know, it's been, we observe mental health a lot. Okay. Those are all the same questions. Those are all ways of making sense of human experience and human behavior. So that's a phenomenological question. And then how do you explain it? Well, Tradition, you know, up till now, we've explained it as the diagnosis of abnormality. ACES moves us to a really different place. ACES says, actually, a lot of difficult experiences in adulthood are normal. That doesn't mean they're okay. It means that they are normal childhood human development. But it's what happens when you live with fear and stress and the inability to make sense of what's happening to you. So the idea that things that we used to think of as personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, as normal, when you come out of a childhood of abuse, trauma, fear, is a radical reframing of how we understand human experience. But I guess what I'm trying to say with all of that is that the, question, the fundamental question that ACES is asking, how do you make sense of human experience, is a question that we've been asking 
you know, for several centuries now. One could disagree, but it's a legitimate question. I had a discussion this week on my um, interview series, Tigers and Teddies, with um, two individuals, and we were talking about ACEs. And it was interesting that one of them said that he views screening as a distraction, that although there are strong feelings about it and it's worth talking about, it's not the core issue in ACEs. For him, the core issue is understanding human development. And so for those who think, who equate ACEs and screening, it becomes a really different view to say that it's a distraction. Now, if we get interested, that's one thing, but if we turn it into somebody's right and somebody's wrong, then we can't unpack that. And interestingly, that's what the conversation that's still going on in the chat is very much about that. So it really raises something for people. But if I could just say that for me, what ACEs is about is about understanding that physical health and mental health are not separate things. Yeah. So as somebody who went into recovery in 1990 and has only ever used holistic therapeutic interventions that are embodied um, rather than the medical model and then subsequently trained in holistic therapies, for me, ACEs, is there's nothing radical, there's nothing revolutionary, there's nothing uh, incredible about that research to me at all. If the bodily systems are placed under stress over and over and over again, there will be an impact upon your physical health. You know, that is not rocket science. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> so that's my perspective when um, I got kind of um, interested in wanting to incorporate uh, the ACEs study into my work, which was probably, I don't know, about five years ago or something, um, was from that perspective. It was from a holistic health perspective, which is can we step away from the medical model of understanding our bodies and our physical health and understand the connection because when you go to a holistic therapist you are asked a lot of questions that go all the way back if you go to a proper holistic therapist that go all the way back to your birth you will be asked about what kind of birth do you think you had what kind of and if you haven't been adopted or you, you have access to that information you know you'll be asked about traumas that might have happened those conversations are very normal in the practice of healing and recovery in holistic therapies in the medical model they are not which is why the resistance in health was huge which is why we have these conversations well why should we be asking all these questions that's that's just intrusive it's invasive we shouldn't be asking these questions to people well in holistic health you wouldn't dream of not asking these questions to people because they're important they're vital questions so if i'm going to be a bit simplistic at the moment because i'm watching what's happening in the chat and I'm listening to our conversation at the same time. So for those of you who are listening to this on the podcast, can I just remind you that what's happening is that we're having this webinar and Lisa and I are having a chat. And over here to the side of my screen is, is, the, is a chat bar with all of the people who are attending tonight. 
So, and so that means we can have a big party with all of us talking all at once. So here's what's happening right now. Lisa and I are having a conversation about how the, how the ACEs insights help us to think about the nature of human experience and that childhoods who are stressful and scary change the way you develop. And in other words, it's an insight, it's an idea. And in the chat bar, there's a whole lot of people talking about scoring, right? Now, nobody is wrong, okay? So nobody is wrong here. There's something fascinating about the scoring aspect of ACEs that gets lots of people tense and arguing. And I think there is something really interesting in that. Okay, so people in the chat bar are saying things like, who's scoring? Should they be scoring? Where are they scoring? Are they doing it right scoring? They're scoring in schools? Where are they scoring in schools? I never heard them for scoring. I've never heard of scoring. Okay, so I'm trying to communicate with my voice something about this intersection that I see going on in the chat bar. So that makes me think, okay, the scoring aspect makes people anxious and it makes people argumentative. And it makes people who think that we shouldn't do scoring go, you people who are scoring are bad. And it makes other people who are saying, I'm just trying to find a way to think about children's experience and to do that quickly. And other people are scoring. And I thought it was okay. And my, my manager said it was okay to score. And okay. So if I breathe out and try to bring some calmness to that debate, and in fact, if you can just feel the difference in the way I'm talking, that, you know, the whole debate gets into that kind of frenetic place. If we come back to calmness, this is not unusual either. A scientific discovery was made in 1998 when Felidi and Anda published that paper. Actually, you could say the discovery went back earlier because I continue to, to think that it's an extension of many things we understood in attachment, but ACEs and attachment didn't get married up in the way they could. But in other words, it could go back before 1998. And it it was an idea. Okay, so now we think, how do we put that idea into practice? What do you do with that idea? And one of the things that that has been done is scoring by some people. And some people disagree with that. But it is a basic question. Once you have an insight about how something in the world works, what do you do with that? And and I I think we're just in the middle of rolling out what we do with that. There are some risks. You know, people learned how to build bridges. And so they built some bridges and some of them have collapsed. They weren't built very well and people died on them. And I say that because I'm here in Dundee. We had a big bridge that collapsed. They didn't use, they, they didn't build the bridge very well. I think what I'm trying to say is how do we use this information well? And who has the power to decide that? And who has the power to do it badly? And it isn't surprising that we should be here I actually think it's encouraging because it means we are talking about how do we pay attention to childhood suffering. As long as we remember that is at the core of it, then we make some sort of progress for seeing suffering, which our culture is really good at ignoring. And can I say one more thing just before I can see you coming in there, Lisa, just to put it out there. 
a number of people in the chat bar have said, well, maybe in America they're doing more scoring than we're doing, say, here in Scotland. Here's one more part of the debate that I think we have not looked at. There are different cultural responses to this information. So what America does with this information may well be different from what Britain does with it or Canada does with it or the Netherlands does with it. And so I think we need to think more about the cultural context in which this information is used and received and the economic differences and the, the, the you know, different cultures see the world in different ways. And as this now spreads out across the globe, I think we need to spend more time thinking about different cultural responses to this information. And interestingly, you saw before I press record, I was having a conversation with here in here with someone from Karachi and I've done quite a lot of work in Pakistan. And one of the questions that I posed really, uh, and I've done an article on it, I think it's in Celsius um, journal, I can't remember, um, was how relevant is it is thinking about adversity in a developing country? Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I, I'm not saying that I kind of concluded anything particularly, but what I can say is that there's trauma and there's trauma. And, you know, being in a developing country with the complexities that, that Pakistan has and the lack of structures to support um, adversity, recovery yes. in any kind of way, um, just takes it on to another level. And I, th- and I was rather hoping when I came to ACE, ACE was it ACE Aware Nation where Nadine yes. came, um, I was rather hoping I was going to get to ask her what her thoughts were about that. Um, because I think you're absolutely right. We have to contextualise what it is we're talking about. And actually, somebody put in the chat box, I can't quite see it now, that that they agreed with your proposition, really, which is that the question is, what is it that we're going to do, you know, with this information? I kind of feel compelled to go and find the question. Um, yeah, how do we use that information well? I think that's a great centering question. How do we use that information well? And if we could start from a place of questioning and curiosity, instead of a place of fear and accusation, we could get somewhere with that. I understand why there is fear, but to act on the fear doesn't help us address the wider issues like how do we do this well? And And so if we just take, you know, really interestingly, in America, they're doing more scoring. And Nadine Burkharis has been a lead voice in that. And we could, if we wanted, get interested in how she chose that, why she chose that. She's working with doctors. She's working in the medical profession. She's working in areas of considerable adversity. She's working in communities where they shoot each other. Okay. In Scotland, we have ended up not doing that. So there's, there's not scoring going on in Scotland. Now, some people up here might go, well, there are some schools doing that. Okay, so now when I say in Scotland, we're not doing that, who's Scotland? And does that mean the government has to decide that? Does that, who gets to decide whether we're doing scoring or not? That's one of the questions happening here. But by and large in Scotland, we are not doing 
scoring. And we have relationships, by and large, I think, at the center of our thinking in the grassroots movement. Now, in other places, relationships may not be quite so foregrounded in thinking. One of the reasons I think that has happened is because I'm a developmental psychologist. That means a child psychologist. I study infant development. I know how important that is. So since I have ended up as one of the loud voices in this, I have made sure that we keep relationships at the center of it. But there's something weird and fascinating in that. That means that the way a, a concept, the way an idea gets understood in the wider public depends on the insights of the leaders, right? So if it is true, and that becomes an interesting question, that Scotland has kept relationships as part of its thinking, is that partly because my voice is in there? I know that there are folks in other countries, my colleagues, who said to me, I'm, I'm really glad you are keeping relationships at the center of your thinking because I get concerned when, when they don't take such a central place. That makes me think, okay, so how did they get there? Does that mean that in Scotland they're there, but in England they're not? Like in Northern Ireland, are relationships at the center? What about in, in the Netherlands? The Netherlands is just starting to pick up on this because there's a woman, Marianne and Vic, who are there leading that. Um, Elizabeth Perry, who is with us tonight from Canada, her key point is that lived experience needs to be at the center of this, which is slightly different from a developmental psychologist's perspective. I am really intrigued by how people who have power in a movement, what they know and what they bring becomes part of how a wider public understands that concept itself. Does that make sense, Lisa? I think it's both exciting and it could be dangerous. Yeah. Right. So who do you listen to? to talk to about ACEs when we are in the middle of this big debate, which is our latest debate about childhood suffering. Yeah. And I think one of the things that ACEs has done is become much more understandable and available to more mainstream settings. And because of its simplicity, and its simplicity is its strength and its weakness all at the same time, Absolutely. in my view. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the simplicity, so let's just, let's go really simple. So people go, oh, are there 10 aces? What, what are they? Um, okay, so that's uh, um, exposure to domestic violence, a parent in prison, um, emotional abuse, sexual abuse. The simplicity of that is that people go, okay, I, I know what those are okay, I think I know what you're talking about. That simplicity is what some people don't like. And some people go, what about other things on that list, like bereavement and bullying and community violence? So now we can have a debate about what should go on the list. And whether the list is bigger than Felidi and Anda's original list, and do I even know how that original research was carried out? And there's a whole lot of questions in there. But in addition to that, The fact that it's simplistic and lets you step into it, that's its advantage because 
or one advantage, because when you talk about processes like attachment or trauma, that's a bit more vague, right? People have to go, okay, I, I'm, tell me how that works. And complicated. And complicated. I've, I've literally just tried to write a chapter for my next book on trauma, on attachment, and on ACEs. The easiest chapter was actually ACEs. Trauma is a very, very complicated subject. So for the people who feel strongly that that we should be talking about trauma and not ACEs, or we should be talking about trauma-informed and not ACE-aware, I say, I pause. You can hear me searching for words. I can hear you thinking. (laughs) (laughs) I think we need to be asking, we need to be curious. So for the people who feel strongly about a trauma lens, I think we should be asking, why has ACEs caught on? Why does that work for people? Are there things that that an ACEs frame reaches some people that a trauma frame doesn't reach? For me, I want whatever frame helps us to think about childhood suffering. And different frames may work for different people. And I think we need to get more curious about how come some frames work and some don't. Since I talk a lot about attachment, there was no public debate about attachment. There certainly hasn't been one more recently. There was a lot of resistance in the 1950s when people who were talking about attachment tried to get health professionals to let parents stay in hospitals with their children because they understood that damage was being done by standard hospital practice. But there was a lot of resistance because the professionals thought that you were saying, you think I don't provide good care? How dare you interfere with my, you know, with my professionalism, with my professional integrity. And so I think if we have to have debates in order to get better care for children, okay, then let's have them. I would rather be doing that than sit with silence. The more every single one of us who are part of this can bring curiosity to this, even about the things that seem obvious to us and we don't understand why somebody else has a different view, the more curiosity we bring, the more we address childhood suffering and its consequences, which for me, this is what this is about. Suzanne, I'm going to take us into questions. Okay, do we? Okay, they're, they're all really like long questions. And if anyone wants to put anything in the Q&A, please go for it. So this is Rosie, um, Rosie Knowles. She's put, I think a lot of the disconnect and discomfort comes from people who are afraid that they are being labelled and judged as victims or that their A score is somehow a doom prediction. Yes, I've heard that. Um, the I am not my aces seems in part to be a pushback against the labeling in a negative way and how it makes people feel. Um, they feel defined by their suffering rather than their overcoming um, or how strong they were to survive it. How can we all work together to find a framework that is both designed to change systems, which is so needed for children in trauma, and bring about better outcomes for children, and also provide recognition and offer healing to adults who are feeling very conflicted. Before I hand over to you, Suzanne, I think you've you've pitched that exactly where I start when I go into a room and do, deliver training. Those are all the things I'm holding 
in my mind. So thank you for bringing that in. Suzanne, what's your thoughts on that? It makes me think about your very first point of power. So I'm not going to answer Rosie's question. I'm just going to shine a light on the problem. It makes me think of Toni Morrison and one of the favorite sentences that she wrote and all the wonderful things she's written that I never forget, which is, definitions belong to the definers, not the defined. That's an issue of power. And so if part of what we have going on is that people feel like they're being labeled and what they're, by ACEs, and what they're saying is, I define me, you don't get to label me. I will. I want to define myself not as victim, as having overcome suffering. That, that's an issue of power. Who gets to define who I am? And I think those are very important discussions. I mean, Toni Morrison was writing about slavery in, um, in the book that that comes from. So in other words, that issue about who gets to define someone else's experience is not applicable only to ACEs. And I think that's really important and helpful to remember that this issue of who gets to define, who has the power to uh, talk about what is relevant in human experience, those debates are not about ACEs. ACEs steps into those debates and they're one way to illustrate that. But that is not about ACEs itself. That's about human dimensions. That's about power. That's about hierarchy. And that's when you start to realize that, it, that since ACEs is talking about the way that we treat each other, it steps into a much wider debate about how we want our societies organized and how we should be treating each other. Yeah. Um, and just to throw in that people might want to explore stuff around adversarial growth. There's a big body of research around that that's worth looking at. Um, John, so I've been wondering for a few years about whether ACEs and trauma are the same thing. What are your thoughts? For me, working with children in the care system in UK schools, attachment is thrown into the mix. And I focus on how adults can help children in school with any of this. I've also experienced these sufferings as a child, so it still hurts when I empathize. Oh, John. Yeah, absolutely. And I had a fantastic podcast with somebody called um, Tracy Farrell, who I know will listen uh, to this. She's in Australia, so she's probably asleep right now. Um, But definitely have a listen. And she talks about when we connect, when we empathize from a place of our own suffering, it takes so much more from us. It's a beautiful podcast. Please take a listen. Um, I'm happy to answer that, but Suzanne, you're the guest. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I'm kind of getting repetitive tonight. For me, whatever helps us, both individually and as a culture or as a system, to recognize childhood trauma, I am happy to adopt that lens. So for me, there's a practicality to this. We're not good at seeing childhood suffering. So therefore, if, if, if a trauma lens helps us to do that, yay. If an ACEs lens helps us to do that, yay. If different lenses work for different people, I'm happy to embrace that too. So when, when 
when we pitch it as either trauma or ACEs, sometimes I go, mm, where is this sharp division? Where's this polarization to use your word earlier, Lisa? Now there may be, there may be some valuable reasons for pulling those apart and saying, here's, here are advantages that one frame gives us over the others. Then let's take that apart and look at it. For me, ACEs and trauma and attachment and PTSD and developmental trauma, all of those different labels are all part of the same mix. And I think it's valuable myself to see how they overlap. And so I just keep, I keep all of those terminologies and frames in my head and in my tool bag all the time. I don't know. How do you see it, Lisa? Do you agree or disagree? I pretty much agree with that. I mean, I suppose I see it as Venn diagrams. And I mean, if we're going to think about what Jack Shunkoff says, you know, his view is that adversity doesn't have to become trauma, although I would uh, find that a little confusing if we're talking about some of the some of the categories that are brought up in the ACEs study. But his view is that as long as we have that buffering adult, um, then there's an opportunity for ad, ad, an adverse experience to not become trauma because of the way that we experience it inside. We know our, our friend Gabor talks about trauma not being the event, but the way we experience it. So for me, like you, I see all of it in a in a mix and in a pot and different things are going to resonate, different, you know, different ways of understanding the things that have happened to us we need as much of the we need as many of those opportunities as possible that's 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 the way i feel about it really and lisa yeah yeah one of the things one of the gaps that i think is interesting and indeed exciting to understand is that feliti and anda in 1998 when they came up with aces basically had an empirical database they could say these things seem to be related in some way to these things, childhood experience to, to adult outcomes, but they didn't have a theory. So when you say that Jack Shonkoff says buffering helps to keep stress from becoming toxic, now you're talking about a theory. That's about the mechanism that makes it work. But the original ACEs work didn't have a theory it just had an empirical database. Now, I think that what Jack Shonkoff is talking about is attachment. So that's providing yeah. the theory that goes with it. So helping people to pull some of that apart and understand what some ideas bring and some ideas don't have, let's just put together. It's like a puzzle. It lets us start to fit pieces together. But when the debate gets with a sharp accusatory tone, it shuts people down and it keeps them from asking those questions and, and, and seeing how we might put it together. So I just hope that one of the things that will come out tonight is that it helps people to stay curious and helps people to keep stepping in rather than stepping out, knowing that because this is really tricky territory, it's not surprising that people do have strong feelings, but don't go away. Stay part of the discussion. Help, you know, help us stay curious because childhood suffering leaves terrible consequences. Our children deserve our curiosity. 
Thank you. And do we have a view, Carrie-Anne asks us, on how social workers can use the ACES framework stroke information, for example, with um, service users, she has written. Lisa, do you want to speak to that? Because you're a social worker by background. Do you want to speak to that? Um, I haven't worked in practice for a long time. Um, I think that I would not be necessarily explicit about the ACEs framework, but I would always want to be having curious conversations with people um, about, I mean, one of the, one of the questions that I like that I think is helpful if you want to get into this kind of conversation with somebody is um, people who have experienced some of the things you're experiencing have had difficult things happen to them when they were younger. Does that apply to you? You know, in a way of opening up a conversation that means you can have a conversation about something that somebody can choose to have with you or choose not to have with you, but you're opening up that space. I think that should be part of practice anyway, isn't it? You know, and making some kind of acknowledgement. I mean, I, I just very briefly remember speaking to a nutritionist and a homeopath in my early going to holistic therapist to help me recover from my own traumas. And both of them talked about um, my eczema in in relationship with trauma. And I don't remember being angry about it, upset about it. It helped me. It helped me understand that there were things happening to my body because of things that had happened when I was younger. And I don't remember them being disrespectful about the people who hadn't had the resources, the tools or the wherewithal to prevent those things happening to me. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the conversation being like that or feeling like that. There were no baddies, right? And that's one of the things I really like about thinking about adversity, thinking about trauma, is that it exercises a compassion muscle that means we don't have to have baddies. We have people who aren't resourced. We have people who did the best they could. We have people who also were had experienced trauma and hadn't recovered from it. You know, we had a whole range of things that for me, and I'm only speaking for myself, it's not for everybody. We all have very different ways of making sense of ourselves. For me, that was really helpful the notion that there are bad people doing bad things and they've done terrible things to me was a narrative and a story that um, I don't I don't think would have helped me. Uh, and again, I'm just speaking for myself. And Lisa, if I can take that powerful story about eczema, okay? Uh, so I'm thinking about a friend of mine who also has eczema. And when we have talked about the possibility that that eczema could be related to childhood experiences, we very quickly come up against issues 
of shame. Mm. So this comes back to one of the earlier um, themes of this conversation. So for all that, that might, there might be a really helpful connection there. Mm. If getting close to it gets you to have to confront issues that you feel ashamed about because Mm. of the, of the experiences you had as a child, meaning they were shameful at the time then here's one of the problems, but you know, this is the problems of confronting childhood trauma is that although there's information there that could be helpful to you, the getting to it is so painful that you, that you can easily shut it down because it's just too painful to look at. So would a different way in, would a different language help you to get there? That's kind of what I mean by my pragmatic approach to this. What helps us to resolve and prevent childhood suffering? Yeah. And, and if we can stay curious to that, then we have a better chance of doing that rather than trying to talk about what's the right way and the wrong way, because different ways will work for different people. And we have confronted this before. So one other thing to pick up on what you said a minute ago, Lisa, about the social works. Attachment has been taught to social workers for you know, quite a few decades now. And social workers have had to decide what will they put in court reports and what will they put in adoption reports and what will they put in reports where you're going to take a decision to perhaps remove a child from their parent. And a um, bit of language that has been really common is in social work reports to say that um, the child demonstrates poor attachment or the parent demonstrates poor parenting. Okay, so that question about what language do I put into a report is not unlike what ACEs language might I use in a report. All language can be used in ways that are diagnostic, are judgmental, judgmental, are not necessarily theoretically informed. So I often talk about the fact that the idea, the observation, that there's no such thing as poor attachment. There's no such thing as poor attachment if you understand attachment. There are, form, there are styles of attachment that create difficulty for a child. And yes, parenting contributes to that. But when we slipped into the language of poor attachment, that wasn't theoretically grounded, and it also became judgmental and became a way for making decisions that were were not helpful, that in themselves were harmful. So what I'm trying to do is give an example of the way in which we have tackled this question about applying theoretical knowledge and language long before we got to ACEs. So many of the difficulties that we are experiencing around ACEs are not about the ACEs model or the ACEs application, they are about bigger problems that we have in the way we understand human experience, the ways that we set up societies and the way that professional sectors function. And we would serve ourselves if we got more curious and aware of that. Mm. That part isn't about ACEs, even if ACEs is the latest illustration of that. I mean, we are at eight o'clock and (laughs) we haven't even, I don't even feel like 
we've commenced. I mean, there's, you, there's so much coming up there that I want to get into around languages, around intergenerational uh, transmission, trauma, whatever language you want to use, and also about the shame stuff that you talked about and what that feels like when you're starting to reflect upon your own parenting, what it's like to be a parent <laughs> and think about your, you know, what have you brought with you into that parenting space? And as somebody who has done huge amounts of um, personal journey work and professional work, I, that is not a comfortable place, but it's a place I can go and hang out in. If you haven't done any of that stuff, that is a very, very difficult place to go and hang out in. I mean, we could we could do another hour. We, Lisa, we could so easily. Can I come in just right there and say, that is why I tell stories so often, okay? And I tell stories about people who have gone on a journey who parents who say, I didn't used to know this, and now I do know this, and here's the difference it's made. Teachers who say, I didn't used to know this, and now I realize that, yes, probably I might have harmed some children. Now I know, but to see people own up to the impact that they may have had on children, and to not tell that story with shame, but with self-forgiveness, is really powerful. It gives other people permission to not know and to get curious. And I think that's both personally and professionally. And I think we should tell more of those stories. And I'm doing my very best to share other people's stories because it helps other people step in. So if that is helpful to people listening, if you share stories of change and that journey, it's a way of helping people to step in without, uh, without, ascribing shoulds and you need to do this and you have to do this and you're wrong if you don't do that it helps people to step in with a place of curiosity and gentleness and compassion so it's not you know societies for eons would have said that storytelling is a powerful way of helping to understand human experience and perhaps our society is learning that again in new ways Suzanne thank you so much for coming onto the podcast You've been amazing. I feel like we are going to have to so do this again. Wishing you an absolutely beautiful evening. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Lisa. It has been an absolute joy to talk about some really tricky stuff.